Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. Super excited to answer your questions this evening. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to check out rebelcapitalistlive.com. Our next conference is in May, May 12th through the 14th in Orlando. And we're going to have some amazing speakers, uh, some speakers that we haven't had yet, such as my good buddy Chris McIntosh. And uh, we'll have about 12 or 13 speakers. I think we've got maybe, I don't know, four or five lined up, something like that. You can check out the speakers that we have uh, a green light from on rebelcapitalslive.com. But uh, get your tickets ASAP before they sell out. Limited space. We've sold over 100 tickets so far. I'll probably cap it out about six or 700. So now's the time to buy it. And as we get closer to the event, the prices go up. So after the live stream, check that out at rebelcapitalslive.com, not just for the speakers, but to hang out and network with your fellow rebel capitalists. That's probably the most value of the entire event. Just hang out with like-minded people, talk to them face-to-face, and kind of just get a get the batteries of, of freedom and liberty and free market capitalism recharged <laughs> for the next six months of the next year. And obviously, you're going to learn a lot. And uh, we're going to be talking about... Uh, I'm sure gold and real estate and inverted yield curves. And by that time, I mean, who knows what the global economy looks like and uh, definitely going to be a tumultuous year in 2023. So uh, I think the best edge that you can have for yourself and your portfolio is to check out Rebel Capitalist Live at rebelcapitalistlive.com. All right, let's get into your questions. Oh, yay. We've got a scammer here already. <laughs> I always like to point out the scammers. Uh, Just so you guys, if you're new to the channel, don't respond to anyone that's using my name or my image as this person is. And uh, I'm never going to talk about a Bitcoin investment. I'm never going to give you my WhatsApp number. Uh, I'm never going to recommend any, uh, you know, investment advisor that I just invested $8,000 with and they're paying me uh, a a monthly return of 200%. It's just total nonsense. So. I don't know. I keep retweeting. I don't know why Facebook and YouTube uh, allow so many of these scammers on their platform, but it is what it is. So just be aware there, guys. All right, let's get into your questions. Is there a risk that you could miss a buying opportunity if short-term crash occurs while your T-bills are maturing? No, because I could just sell the T-bills. So just let's go through that. If we have a, a crash, let's say, and um, most likely, what's the Fed going to do? Uh, probably going to lower rates. And uh, if we do have a crash, even if they don't lower rates, the, the market will probably uh, increase the demand for T-bills, increasing the price. And uh, so there's a, a good prob- there's a good chance, not 100%, not even close, but there is a good chance, high probability, uh, that the T-bills are at least worth what I paid for them. So I don't have to wait for them to mature the three months or four months or whatever, I can just go ahead and, and liquidate them and then go ahead and take that cash and uh, buy something that has come down in price that I want to hold over the long term, such as a specific commodity. Is it inflation? Is it inflationary when the treasury issues treasuries? So this is a very interesting question. So let, let's start with the basics. When the government issues a treasury, this is deficit spending. So they are taking currency units from 
investor A, say the average Joe who wants to buy the treasury, that those currency units are basically going to the government. I mean, not really. It gets technical with the TGA there on the Fed's balance sheet and whatnot. But let's just assume that uh, these are green pieces of paper. The average Joe gives the green pieces of paper to Janet Yellen. She puts them in her back pocket, and then she issues the average Joe a treasury. Then Janet Yellen will take those green pieces of paper, and then she'll send them to ABC person, the average Jane, let's say, for uh, a welfare program or whatever government spending. So once the currency units go from the average Joe to uh, Janet Yellen, they are taken out of the circulation. Therefore, this would impact M2. It would decrease M2. But then when Janet Yellen spends those currency units back into the economy by giving them to the average Jane, then M2 would go up by the same amount that it went down when Joe bought the treasury to begin with. And it's the exact same thing with taxes. But taxes are a little bit more, in fact, a lot more clear in the sense that unless you're changing the velocity, which gets technical there, because if you're taking money out, let's say taking M2 down, you're taking very low velocity M2 down uh, out of the economy, such as it's on like a pension funds balance sheet or something. And then you're, you're spending that out in stimulus checks. You're, you still got the same M2, but you cranked up velocity there because you're taking it from a very low velocity source and you're giving it to individuals that will most likely spend it with high velocity. So this could impact inflation, which I think is definitely at the heart of your question. So, so now that we kind of understand those basics where the government is sucking, let's see, currency units out of the economy, and then they are putting those same currency units right back into the economy. In this particular example, M2 has not changed, but we have to ask ourselves if there's any difference with the liquidity of a currency unit and a treasury, because this is where it gets really interesting and very complex, especially if you're trying to look at it through the lens of inflation probabilities moving forward. So let's say that that treasury goes to the average Joe. He's most likely just going to keep it on his balance sheet, do nothing with it. He's not going to turn it into liquid cash. But let's just say that that treasury goes onto the balance sheet of a hedge fund, that the hedge fund buys it from Janet Yellen. Okay, this is a non-bank entity. So that's taking uh, currency units out of M2, putting it back in when she takes it from the hedge fund over to the average Jane. But now the hedge fund has a, I would argue, a cash equivalent because the hedge fund or the, the banking institution, fill in the blank, they can take that treasury and they don't have to sell it. They can just go right into repo and say, okay, give me the currency units. And another bank can create the currency units out of thin air to give to the hedge fund to go buy stocks and whomever the hedge fund buys stocks from, then they have those currency units, those new currency units on their balance sheet. And therefore, M2 on net balance has increased as a result of the hedge fund having an asset that I would argue is just as liquid as the cash equivalent. So I think my answer would be it's possible and it depends. 
the, the degree to which it is inflationary depends on who is getting that treasury and how liquid is it based on the, uh, the use case. So that average Joe, the use case, just sitting on his balance sheet, just parking it, do nothing. Where that hedge fund, their use case is probably buying those T-bills so they can use them as collateral and repo to go ahead and, 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 and get currency units to buy stocks or, or what have you. So this is a very, it seems like a very straightforward question, but when you start digging beneath the surface, uh, as you can tell, there's, there's quite a bit of nuance. And so I, I would say that, again, is it inflationary when the treasury issues treasuries? It can be, and the degree, and if it is, the degree to which it is inflationary depends on where those treasuries end up. Hopefully that makes sense. Great question. Do you recommend poor people buying silver if they can't afford gold? Well, I mean, I can't give anybody really investment advice. I can say I think silver is a little different from gold in the sense that to, to me, gold is insurance where silver, it, it can be insurance, but it's a little more speculative because it has so much, so much more. The price is based on industrial use. Honestly, um, I mean, I think it's if if I had if my purchasing power was let's say significantly limited, and I wanted to protect it, I think silver would be something I would consider for sure. Along with well, I was going to say along with T bills, but if you're if you're not able to get gold, you're probably not going to be able to do that. So I, I think that's my best answer. It's 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 if I was very limited on my financial resources. But I was very concerned about maintaining my purchasing power with my savings. I think silver is definitely something I would consider understanding that I, 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 I wouldn't do like 100% because at the end of the day, my expenses are still denominated in dollars and silver can go down. And if you are, are limited in your financial resources, you never know when you have an emergency that requires dollar bills. And if you have one of those emergencies, you could be forced to liquidate your silver position in order to come up with those dollars. And that puts you in a position of being a very motivated seller. And you might have to sell at a significant loss, which defeats the purpose of having it as purchasing power or, or having it to maintain your purchasing power to begin with. So that that's kind of how I would look at it for, for my personal portfolio. I definitely consider it. I wouldn't go all in um, just because, again, your expenses are denominated in dollars and that gives you a little what what uh, essentially is like FX risk. Will the US, UK, NATO push Russia into nuclear war? Well, there's a above zero probability, obviously not zero, not a hundred. If, if you would have asked me this a couple months ago, I, I, I would have said the probability was higher. Now I think the probability is lower. Because thankfully, you have some politicians coming out and uh, saying, hey, let, let's try to get Ukraine to the bargaining table. Let's try to do our best to get uh, Putin there. And uh, I, I think the politicians in the United States and in the West understand that this is, this is going to be politically unpopular. Uh, I think especially in the UK when 
they're looking at their energy bills go through the roof and millions of people not being able to afford just their gas bill for heaven's sakes. And they kind of connect the dots and say to themselves, hey, you know, we want to support Ukraine, but I've got to take care of my family first. And if I have to choose Ukraine or keeping my kids warm, bad, bad set of options, but I'm going to choose to keep my kids warm. And uh, so I think that's going to motivate the politicians to maybe go from from virtue signaling because they thought that's what would score them the most political points to trying to advocate for uh, peace and just kind of let's negotiate here. So I don't know what my specific probability would be, Peter, but uh, it the good news is it's lower than it would it was a couple months ago. Am I bullish on any African countries? I haven't looked into them enough to know which, I mean, about a year ago, I, or maybe actually, maybe it was two years ago, I was looking at Tanzania. Tanzania seemed interesting, but I haven't done any research on it in a long time. I know South Africa does not look interesting, but that means that uh, South Africa, I think, is in serious decline, but that suggests that it may be prudent to put them on a watch list because, again, not that I'd pull the trigger right now, but if you see a country that's getting worse and worse and worse, at some point they're going to bottom out. And uh, when you see a catalyst, and that's key, a lot of times it can take years, decades for that catalyst to appear. Uh, But when you do see one, that that often is a a great buying opportunity. So other than that, not really, not, not too many African countries are on my radar. What do you think about coal and nat gas prices, price caps in Australia? Any price caps are ridiculous. I mean, price controls never worked. They never will work. It's just politicians trying to buy votes at the expense of the poor and middle class. So I, I'm, I'm definitely against any types of price controls, and that would include price caps. If I was a banker, where would you hide the stolen money for the crash? Uh, I don't <laughs> probably T bills, T bills and gold. Are money market accounts safe havens for people with four hundred one ks that can't put their money in T bills? So money market accounts. I don't know money market account or money market fund. But um, so a money market account, your counterparty's still the bank. A money market fund, you're going to have that uh, whomever is controlling the fund is going to take additional counterparty risk because they're going to be taking your money and uh, parking them at the Fed, which obviously not much risk there, or lending them in repo, which is collateralized most likely by treasuries. But it is additional risk. So I would say for for me, if if there was absolutely no way that I could put my money in T-bills, I'd consider it, but I'd probably want to do some homework just with the balance sheet of the bank that I was doing business with, whether it was Wells Fargo, E of A, or a small community bank. You know what I'd probably use as the litmus test is how they did during the GFC. So as an example, I've got a, uh, a little bank that I've been doing business with since 2000, maybe 14 or so, maybe 2015. And uh, I've become really good friends with the guy that's in charge of VP, he's the VP for commercial lending, I think is his title. And whenever I go back there, we always grab lunch or dinner. And 
his bank didn't sell any mortgages to Fannie and Freddie or any of that nonsense. They kept them all on their balance sheet. And they just sailed right through the GFC completely unscathed. I mean, didn't have to lay anybody off. I mean, nothing. Just just bounced off them like, like uh, you know, it was just child's play. So that's the type of bank that I would look for because you know that if their management was smart enough to navigate the GFC without a scratch, they're most likely going to be able to navigate whatever we have coming in 2023. And um, there, I'm assuming they'd be paying a little bit higher than the uh, checking account. And so that could make sense. That's kind of how I'd, I'd think about it. Or also, too, those money market accounts, and you guys would know this better than than, than I would, but they're probably FDIC insured. So if it was left in less than 250, I wouldn't really hesitate there. Although the FDIC doesn't have even close to enough money to, <laughs> uh, if, if banks start going out of business to cover all the deposits, uh, I think they'll just easily get bailed out. George, have you considered interviewing Gareth Soloway on Rebel Capitals? You know, I'm not really doing too many interviews anymore because they just, uh, you know, I was really doing them just because I'd want to talk to the person and kind of uh, understand their ideas better. And uh, I wasn't really doing it for the channel and uh, is also good content for the podcast. But now I do so many live streams on the Rebel Capitals channel that that's really what people like to listen to on the podcast. So uh, occasionally I have someone on for a live stream, but I don't do too many interviews anymore. Thanks for the suggestion. Advice for someone who's 65 about to retire, relying on Social Security, consider moving. I mean, if you're on, I, I don't know, let's say $2,000 a month Social Security, you're going to have a real difficult time making that work in the United States, but not so much in Mexico and in Colombia. You'd be, you'd be totally fine. Totally fine. So that would probably be my first advice. Just go somewhere where the cost of living is a lot lower and you can take advantage of your income being in dollars and your expenses being denominated in another currency. If you consider gold as insurance, in what scenario would you cash in your policy? Oh, I wouldn't. Never plan to sell. It's just to maintain purchasing power over the long run. Will having oil gas stocks be a good place to be over the next year? I have no idea. I mean, I can give you a, a great argument for why they would be, and I can give you a great argument as to why they wouldn't be. So why they would be is on the supply side of the equation. Why they wouldn't be would be on the demand side of the equation. And when I'm talking about the demand side, just look at the yield curve. and You'll know exactly what I'm referring to. So that would imply that demand is going to decrease significantly. That said, you're dealing with two commodities that have very inelastic demand. And uh, I'd also suggest for the supply side, listening to my good buddy, Eric Townsend on Macro Voices, who is an expert in oil. And he'll tell you that the, the, the supply side just isn't going back to what it was in 2019. So if we do have... Uh, you know, even if we do go into a recession, if it's mild, we have a soft landing, and you combine that with China opening back up, you could see uh, a huge spike in price just because even OPEC plus 
you know, they can talk about increasing the amount of barrels they produce all they want. But the bottom line is uh, they can't even run it at, at maximum capacity right now. Uh, or the, the maximum capacity in which they say they're trying to run. So just to give you an example, if OPEC comes out and says, okay, our cap on supply that we're going to produce is 100 barrels. Well, they can't even produce that. They're only producing like 90. And these obviously these aren't exact numbers. I'm just using this as an example. But they're, I forgot what they call the target. Uh, Eric would know this. But the... Um, Oh, it's the, um, it's the supply. Ah, I'll think about it in a moment. But effectively, it's when OPEC Plus comes out and says, hey, we're going to put a, uh, a, a target on the amount of supply we're going to produce. But most of the OPEC countries aren't even producing at that level. And the way they hit the aggregate total is that one of the big, the big boys like Saudi Arabia produces more. And so they kind of uh, you know, hit their nut. But uh, bottom line is supply is most likely going to be very constrained moving forward. So that would be the, the bull side argument on the supply supply issues. And the bear argument would be on the demand side when you look at the yield curve, predicting that we'll have a pretty severe recession in 2023. I think their quotas, their target quotas is how OPEC plus phrases it, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, guys, just bear with me looking through here. Some of these questions are, are uh, duplicates. Does Rebel Capitalist Pro discuss specific investing strategies? Well, Rebel Capitalist Pro, you've got live streams that are exclusive for our members where you can ask any question you want. Uh, and the pros in there are uh, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Patrick Sresna, Jason Hartman. And sometimes we'll have like a, a guest person in there. And then I do live streams every Sunday night specifically for our, our pro members. So you can ask any question. It's a forum. You can ask uh, questions to the, the fellow pro members. And then Lynn, it's got Lynn's premium research product in there. And then uh, Chris's research, pro, one of his research products as well, in which case they talk about their own investing decisions, their own investing ideas. So, uh, and, and they're obviously going over strategies uh, that they're trying to employ for their own portfolios and for their, their clients. You know, Chris McIntosh manages quite a bit of money. So uh, that's pretty much what it entails. And uh, like Rebel Capitalist Live, I think it's a, a great place to check out or it's a great website. It's a great, uh, it's a great forum to be a member going into 2023 because I think we're going to have a lot of volatility. Um, I think people are going to be in a position where it's very easy to allow their emotions to take over. Uh, and I think it's great to have kind of like a, a North star there to where if you're freaking out, you don't know whether you should sell this or buy this or do this, you know, what, what am I doing with gold or gold miner, all these things you can come on there and, and just find out what Chris and Lynn are doing or, or Brent Johnson and, uh, and maybe ask them a question directly and uh, hopefully give you some, a little bit of guidance that will help you make better decisions. It's all about having an edge. And uh, I just really treat those pros in Rebel Capitals Pro like my own personal research assistants. And at the end of the day, I'm the one that needs to make my own decisions. But that's uh, pretty much what it's about. So I guess my answer would be, yeah, it definitely does 
discuss specific investing strategies. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. How much money is required to get into treasury bills? I'm piggybacking off. I'm not sure because Josh helped me out with this for the model portfolio and Rebel Capitalist Pro. And he we just used my interactive broker account, which was kind of a pain in the butt because I was buying like, I forgot the chunks, like $25,000, $50,000 chunks. And it was hard to get filled. It really was because these big banks just didn't even want to deal with it. So, but I think if you go to treasury, was it treasurynow.gov or something? You can buy them directly from the treasury, but I, I don't know what, what increments. So if you just go on their website, I'm sure it's, it's, it's really straightforward. I know that's what my sister does. And my sister's very uh, technically, well, I, I'm not going to say technically challenged, but she's not exactly technically advanced. <laughs> so if she can do it, I, I can assure you, you can as well. Do you think we'll ever see fiat currency as a digital currency with anonymity as printed bills, the blockchain technology would allow it. Do you think we'll see fiat currency as digital currency with anonymity printed bills? I don't know why that would be, I guess the anonymity, assuming that's how it would work, I guess that would be desirable. But I, I don't know what would prompt someone when you could just use Bitcoin. I guess maybe if you're talking about the government, um, I mean, obviously the government isn't going to do anything with an anonymity. So I would say probably not because I just don't know the entity that would push for that and how or why people would adopt. I mean, I know why people would adopt it, but I don't know why an entity would issue it, if that makes sense. Would you have Brian Berlitic so you can discuss the economics of a lack of military industrial output. Yeah, same answer there. I'm not really doing too many interviews anymore. My thoughts on UAE? Definitely interesting. I mean, that whole brick alliance is something that is definitely on my radar. And in my opinion, every prudent investor should be considering kind of how the world looks in five, 10 years assuming that that brick alliance gets stronger and stronger. I just uh, did a story last week on the Rebel Capitals channel where uh, Xi Jinping went down to Saudi Arabia and uh, I know it's different than the UAE, but uh, you know, same 
area and uh, did a deal to trade oil and settle in yuan. So settle in something outside of the dollar. And with the UAE, I think, especially Dubai, could be a beneficiary because I, I think it may turn into the financial hub for those BRIC countries, very similar to how New York, Hong Kong, London is a financial hub for the existing West or, well, really the world right now. But if we get this bifurcation, then I think, you know, you'll have London and New York going one way and with a few countries, and then you'll have Dubai going the other way. And I think a lot of those brick um, companies will, will gravitate toward Dubai. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it definitely has its problems. There are, there's no panacea, definitely no perfect country. But I do like Dubai specifically for those reasons. And I think I'll, I might be going there in January to kind of do some boots on the ground research as far as the real estate market. So cautiously optimistic. When we go digital, will they make us pay bills before we are able to buy what we want? Mm, I don't know about pay bills. I'm, I think they'll make you pay taxes <laughs> before you're able to buy what you want. So instead of paying your taxes at the end of the year, I think you'll have to pay your tax. I mean, I guess most people do come right out of their paycheck. Um, but do, you know, it's, this is embarrassing, but it's been so long since I've had a job. It's been uh, literally decades. So I don't even remember if, if uh, I know your, your social security and whatnot comes out of your paycheck, but maybe, did you, I don't think your income taxes do, do they? But anyway, you guys, you guys would know, but, uh, I know as an entrepreneur, you're supposed to pay quarterly. Uh, I always used to pay just annually and just take the, the hit. And, uh, so I'm sure with entrepreneur, you know, they'll probably just make you pay daily. And I know down here in Columbia with the, uh, you know what they'll probably do actually is down here with my, my brokerage. That's usually when I bring dollars in from the United States, I send it to the, the brokerage account that I have here in Medellin at a place called Alianza, Alianza Valores. And what they do is when I, so the money, let's say I have a hundred thousand dollars. It goes from the United States down to Alianza and they say, okay, we've got the funds. Do you, when do you want us to go ahead and, and buy pesos? I say, okay, now go ahead and do it. They say, okay, great. The exchange rate is 5,000. And then those pesos go into my account minus a small uh, transaction fee. But what happens when I take when I spend money out of that account, even if I transfer it to my, my Bank of Columbia, they take a, it's not a fee, it's really a tax. It's, a, it's like a transaction tax. And so they're taking this transaction tax and that goes directly to the government. And then this is to basically prepay the interest that they assume that you'll make on the funds being in the bank account. So you can imagine if, uh, let's just say you're making 5% on your checking account right now, every single time that you spent a dollar out of your checking account, they would ding you whatever the tax rate is on 5% annually, right? And then at the end of the year, you'd have to settle up. 
but you actually pay the taxes like as you spend the money. So I think that's probably, I, I would assume that's what they're going to do. So just to be clear, uh, let's just say that they're taxing you 5% per annum on your, uh, on your interest that you earn, capital gains, let's say. So uh, let's just, and then, so you've got $100,000 in there. You spend $10,000. So they're not going to tax you at the point of, of spending. They're not going to take, um, what would 5% be? 5% on $10,000 would be, what, uh, $500? So they're not going to take out the $500, but they're going to take out the, because that would be your interest. What would you, what would they assume you're going to owe on that interest? So let's just say your tax rate's 30%. So then they ding you like the the 30% of the 500, assuming that that's, you know, how much you would have made in interest. So you're basically kind of prepaying the interest gain that you may have at the end of the year. And if you overpay, then it like when you do your taxes, you have to kind of settle up. Hopefully that makes it gets a little confusing there. But bottom line is you're kind of prepaying your capital gains tax. And I think they'll most likely do that and then make you prepay income tax, make you prepay all that stuff. As you spend the money, it'll just automatically come out of your account and go right back to the the government to the TGA. What do you think about Columbia's leftist president? I don't like him. He's an easy, easy answer. Easy question. He's a Marxist. He's a socialist. He's buddies with Chavez or was buddies with Maduro, Correa from Ecuador. They're, they're all just the same peas in a pod. And he's got terrible ideas as they all do. So hopefully he won't ruin the country because Colombia has got a lot of tailwind. And it's it's an incredible place to spend time. People are great. Food's great. Weather's incredible. Cost of living is is awesome. But they've got a lot of dollar-denominated debt as a percentage of their total sovereign debt they owe. And so he's trying to talk about reducing the amount of oil that they produce. And that would mean that that reduces the amount of dollars that they have coming in. And that means that they don't have as many dollars to service the dollar debt. That's very inflationary, bad for the currency, which is why you've seen the currency go from 3,800 to 5,000 pretty much since the day he was elected. And uh, that's obviously hurts the poor and middle class by increasing the local inflation rate. And um, it's unfortunate, very unfortunate, but hopefully they'll get him out of here in whatever it is, four years before he can do some significant damage. All right, guys, let's uh, T-bills. If Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling this month and there is a government shutdown and what would happen to my T-bills? Nothing. You'd get paid. And I wouldn't. What I'm saying there is is uh, there's just uh, <laughs> if they didn't pay your T-bills, it wouldn't just hurt you, Ken. They would be the, the entire global economy would collapse into a, 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 a hellscape. And I don't say that in a hyperbolic way. You got to think about what T-bills back up as far as the entities that hold those T-bills as collateral. If, if they default, if they were to ever default on those T-bills, the global monetary system would just, it would cease to exist. 
I mean, you're talking about something that would literally be a hundred times worse, maybe more than the GFC. So, and they, they, they know that. So again, my main point there is out of all the things they're going to prioritize, that would be number one. Where do I see the CPI a year from now? Well, I don't have a specific prediction. I am in the disinflation camp, but that's just through Q1, Q2 of 2023. As far as Q4 of 2023, well, that's anybody's guess. I think if I had to just give you a base case, understanding that it's not really a prediction, I would say, boy, that is a good question. What would my base case be? Because you got to figure you're going to go into a recession. What are they going to do? CPI comes down. It's going to give them an excuse to do more. That's going to increase M2. That's going to decrease supply of goods and services again. You're going to see the same movie play out. But there is going to be a lag. And I don't know that this will happen soon enough for that lag to kick in and actually increase the CPI. I would probably go with, I'd probably go with 5%. If, if I had to just, and again, not a prediction, very low degree of confidence, but that's probably what I'd throw out there right now. I think you'll probably be right in the middle of that disinflation and then maybe the next wave of inflation, looking at the 2020s like the 1940s. Do I think the DXY can hit 135? Sure. Absolutely. Question of when? I think the most likely the dollar goes down, especially when the Fed pauses. So call it spring of 2023, and you're probably going to have an interest rate differential with some of the other major banks because they're still dealing with uh, significant uh, inflation at that time due to their uh, energy problems, the energy crisis they face. Um, and then... Yeah, but that see on the other side of the coin there, if you go into a significant recession that requires the United States to reduce rates, that's going to be, that would be dollar bullish because you've got global economy just screeching to a halt, risk off, buy dollars, buy bonds, treasuries. So again, this is not a prediction, but I definitely can see it hitting 135, but Probably not in the next, probably not within the next six months. What is your best guess or probability that the dollar increases against other currencies, especially the euro? Well, we kind of just answered that with the 135 question. Do you see double peak inflation? Yeah. Yeah. I see inflation peaking, coming down, going sideways. I, I think the 2020s will definitely be an inflationary decade. We'll look back 100 years from now and kind of look at the 2020s like we look at the 1970s and like we look at the 1940s. That said, even in the 70s and especially in the 40s, inflation did not go up in a straight line. It was very volatile to the point where in 1947, the inflation rate was, as measured by the CPI, was over 19%. And a year or two later, is it negative two? That, that's a big change. And I think that we could see similar types of changes. And even in the 1970s, inflation at the beginning of the decade got up to, what was it, maybe 10, 8, 10%. And then it came back down after the 74 
uh, bear market came back down to five in uh, 76-ish, something like that. And in fact, a lot of the political commentators, a lot of the economists back then thought that uh, inflation was done. And this was 75, 76. In fact, I remember watching a debate with uh, a Keynesian economist and Milton Friedman, where Milton Friedman was arguing that inflation was not done. And the Keynesian economist was arguing that it is. And if they were, if the government would just stimulate the economy with more, more government spending, then uh, the inflation rate would go back down below 2%. Uh, I'm not kidding. Uh, that was the argument. Because the Keynesians said that if the government spends more money, deficit spends more, it will increase the amount of goods and services. And uh, that by increasing the supply side is how we'll uh, get rid of the or solve the inflation problem. And Friedman said, no, 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 no. You're just creating more money supply, and that's going to stoke the fire. Of course, <laughs> obviously, Friedman was right in this circumstance. So up, down, up down, up, down. So I think that we peaked out at whatever it was, 9% or so, a little over nine. And we're probably on our way back down right now where we bottom out. I don't know. I would be surprised if it's at 2% unless we have a big crash or a black swan event. And then I think it could go lower than zero. Uh, But then I think due to whatever the government does, the central planners, the authoritarians, I think it will at a certain point go right back up. And we may see two or three, maybe four waves of this up, down, up, down throughout the entire decade. Guys, when you're asking a question, make sure you start with question or it's very hard to see here. Okay, is IOR pocketed by the shareholders of the Fed directly? IOR pocketed by the shareholders of the Fed. I think you might be a little confused on what IOR is. The banks like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, they have accounts with the Fed, just like you have a checking account with uh, your your local bank. And IOR is simply the interest rate that they get paid on their checking account with the Federal Reserve. So if you want to argue that those banksters actually own the Fed, then I think there's <laughs> maybe maybe an argument there how IOR could be pocketed by the shareholders. But uh, without going down that that path, looking at it just on the surface, no, it's uh, IOR is not pocketed by the shareholders of the Fed. IOR, again, just to be clear, is just the interest rate that the banks are being paid for what essentially is their checking account at the Federal Reserve, just like you get paid an interest rate for the dollars that you have in your checking account or savings account. How will CBDCs provide fungibility to users? Well, I think the central bank digital currency will just be denominated in dollars. It'll just be. You'll get uh, $2,000 in Fed bucks every single month, but they obviously they're not going to be called Fed bucks. They're just going to be called dollars. So they're just going to be called digital Federal Reserve notes. So I, I don't, uh, some people have talked about that, how they won't be fungible, but yeah, they will be. Could it be possible China, Russia, et cetera, could dump their dollar reserves all at once to cause a flash crash in dollar value, very low probability. Got to remember that 70% of the global transactions are settled in dollars and China's short energy. So yeah, they're trying to get as much energy as they can from, from Russia. But if they have to go 
and from another source, if they have to buy energy from another source or commodities, they're going to need dollars. And uh, it would not be wise for them to sell all of their dollar reserves. That would be a bad, bad move. So that said, I think they'll, they, they won't buy as many treasuries because they see what happens with the sanctions on Russia. And they say, boy, we don't want our assets to be someone else's liability. And there's a lot of counterparty risk. And so we need, we're going to hold fewer treasuries or dollar denominated assets, but uh, it's, it's definitely not going to be zero. And, um, you know, quite frankly, even if they did dump their, their reserves or whatever, I, I don't think that would really crash the value in the dollar. I mean, the dollar right now is at 105 on the DXY. And uh, you, you got to remember that the dollar market globally is, I mean, who knows, because of the euro dollar market. But let's just say that it's 80 trillion. Okay. If, if you dump, uh, and, and not only that, but it's 80 trillion. And I don't even want to know how much turnover they've got per day. I mean, just based on that BIS report, they're talking about 80 trillion of dollar denominated debt in the form of these derivatives. And I guess there's an argument as to why it's not debt and why it's already on the balance sheet. But who cares? Even if it's already on bank balance sheets, let's just say that it's 80 trillion. And they're talking about $5 trillion a day turning over. $5 trillion a day. So you got to remember that um, China could dump all their dollar reserves and I don't even know if the market would notice <laughs> just because the market is so massive. And that's what most people don't realize. And uh, they kind of, oh my gosh, China dumped all their dollars. You know, it's going to crash the dollar and it's going to lead to hyperinflation. And these people, um, although they may have good intentions, they, they just don't understand the, the magnitude of the global dollar market. And how that sounds like a lot, like a you know five hundred billion dollars, let's say, if China were to dump that, sounds like a lot. But when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, you see that that's like a rounding error. Felix's interview on Wealthion, very very good. I listened to that over the weekend, and you know Adam is a fantastic interviewer, and uh, Felix is, is great. So I really enjoyed that. I'd strongly encourage everyone to listen to it. All right, guys, that'll do it. I'm going to head over to Rebel Capitalist Pro. And uh, for the member live stream, if you want to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro, you can do so at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. And uh, again, about the tickets, if you're late to the live stream, you got to check out rebelcapitalistlive.com. Get your tickets to my next conference. We'll have 12 incredible speakers there. And it's just a really not neat opportunity to increase your knowledge educate yourself, be better prepared for what we're going to see in 2023, while at the same time, networking and getting to hang out with uh, your fellow rebel capitalists in the community. So guys, enjoy the rest of your evening. Let me do some shout outs. we got Becky B in the house, RR Moody, the millennial, Claire's Nian, Danielle Sant, Gary June, Nidhidia, Nidhidia, Dia, very cool name. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Tom Wilson, Andrew Fru, G3 Power Book 335, <laughs> Buzz Responder. Oh crap, what's next? <laughs> Joey Socks, Shifu Zenichi, Tom Latman, 
John Doe, Anana Mouse, Silver Liner, Moody the Millennial. All right, guys. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we'll see you in the next video. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out the Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to the George Gammon YouTube channel.